Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the, um, the first book of Chronicles. And um, I want to uh, begin by setting forth a principle, which I hope that we can um, develop and illustrate as, um, as I proceed. Uh, but it's important to me that, that what uh, we do here on Wednesday nights for the next few weeks uh, be rooted and grounded in, um, in scriptural principle. And um, hopefully you'll find it um, applicable and not simply uh, entertaining, if entertaining at all. First Chronicles chapter 11 tells us a sweet little story. It's one of the, 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 the most precious of all the stories, I think, in the life of David. I think you all know um, that David uh, is a type of Christ. And if that's a confusing concept to you, we need to probably uh, step back and go over that a little bit. We don't have time tonight, but um, you, have to, you have to understand that the Bible contains a fair measure of typology and that Jesus Christ is one of those types of Christ. You find him being used as an illustration of the life of Christ in many ways, uh, particularly in the kingly role of, of Jesus Christ. But uh, next time you read the life of David, keep in mind that he is a type of Christ and, and view him like that as you read it. And I think you'll find uh, greater benefit as you, as you um, uh, think of David as a type of Christ. This is a little story, a little vignette that comes out of the middle of um, the early days of David's reign in Israel. I'm beginning in verse 15. I'll read through verse 19. This is in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 11 verse 15 through 19. Now three of the thirty chief men went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam, and the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. This is a, um, a list, uh, uh, a partial list of the, of the men who were very influential and great leaders in the early stages of David's kingly uh, leadership of Israel. Uh, that they're, they're given names, these three men, the, the three who um, uh, did this, but uh, that's not important for tonight. In fact, um, we could spend a lot of time just developing this little story. But again, I just want to draw one principle out of this story, and then I want to illustrate it and, describe, and expand upon it and try to make some applications from it. Um, here's the principle that's in this story, or at least one of the principles that's in this story. If you're ever going to be close to the king, it's going to involve some risk. That's the principle, ladies and gentlemen. If you want sweet fellowship with the king, 
it's going to include an element, a dimension, a degree of risk. Those who get close to the king do so on occasion by putting their lives in jeopardy. So that's the principle. That's the principle out of this story, and um, that's what has uh, given rise in me and in my wife this whole issue of risk and danger. Let me, um, uh, you might be wondering, how in the world did all this come up? That is, uh, I mean, I thought you were in Europe, in Central Europe, you know, skipping around town and seeing all the sights in Europe and wandering through castles. <laughs> we saw castles, but we never entered one. And let me tell you how the whole issue of, uh, uh, of risk and danger came up. There were several ways. First of all, and by the way, some of you who read the goulashes know some of these stories, but uh, one of them had to do with a, uh, a young Palestinian. His name was Atta, who was uh, visiting the church where I was pastoring. Atta was from Janine, Palestine. Do you know where Janine... You know, does, anybody, does that ring a bell with anybody? There was a great... Um, uh, Israeli, um, uh, perhaps war crime that was committed in Janine, um, and the UN was going to investigate, uh, the moral, uh, the, um, the, the, um, the, the murdering of innocent civilians in Janine. Well, this young man who was, I think he was 27 years old, came from Palestine. He came from the city of Janine. And um, I, when I was first told that he was uh, worshiping with us, I was all excited about the fact that a young Palestinian was hearing the gospel. And in my naivete, um, was, uh, you know, praying for him. And, and, and by the way, I, I don't know how much naivete it was, but at least you, you'll understand in a moment. But um, on one occasion, I was with some missionaries downtown, and we were walking through the streets of Budapest. And, and I said, have you heard about the, the Palestinian who is coming to uh, the church? You know, isn't it exciting that this young Palestinian is hearing the gospel? And this blank stare came across this missionary's face. His name was Ron Clegg. And Ron Clegg looked at me and he said, um, you know that's how they operate, don't you? And I said, who? He said, terrorists. They come uh, and look around. They measure up the place. They size it up, see where the exits are, et cetera, et cetera. And then they come back one Sunday and blow it up. That was on a Sunday afternoon that I was told that. Uh, and for the rest of the day... And night, I'm praying, oh my goodness, I'm going to be standing behind a pulpit with a terrorist in the, in the, in the congregation. The room where I preached was um, a, a, somewhat like this. It wasn't square. It was kind of like this. But there was only one entrance. And there was a long hall back this way. And, and the doors were always open. And I have never preached, and I hope never to preach again, with one eye cut towards the back to see if the terrorist was going to show up. But he, he continued to show up, and, and I, I won't tell you the, whole, the, the length of the story, but uh, he ultimately took me aside and asked me for money, and I said, how much money would you like? I'm just delighted <laughs> that it's money, it's all you want. You want money? I got money. I'll give you money. If, 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 just don't blow us up. Well, uh, that was the first thing that set off some, some concerns and fears in us. The second thing, of course, and this happened first, but it was the war. Um, I had... Um, a man called me from Philadelphia, Bob Snyder, the guy that, uh, you know, that dealt with uh, some of the elders about my going in the first place. Uh, Bob Snyder calls me from Philadelphia and says, um, do you know what you're doing? And it was on a Wednesday night. Susie was doing something with her hair, as she did so much of. Um, 
but uh, uh, I'm sitting, I'm sitting in right bit upstairs, and and I'm talking to Bob Snyder. He's saying, uh, you know, do you sure you want to be over there? And then he tells me this story about a board member of his who's the president of Alcoa, and Alcoa has stopped all uh, flying in uh, Eastern Europe or in, in Europe. Uh, they've called all, the, they've pulled everybody home. There's no more flying because of the impending war. And then about the same time, I get a phone call from Ronnie Stevens, the pastor at First Event, as you know. And Ronnie says to me, are you sure you want to be out of the country when your country goes to war? And I said, well, am I supposed to be thinking this? I mean, what, am I, what, what do you mean? Am I, so, I mean, that's never crossed my mind. What do you mean? I'm supposed to be out of the country. Oh, my God, goes, oh. you know, is that a legitimate concern? And I go to my wife and I say, listen, you know what Ronnie just said? He said he wanted should we be out of the country when our country goes to war. Well, it never crossed my mind. But, of course, um, that same war uh, caused uh, Gracie Van to cancel their mission trip, you bunch of chickens. Um, uh, uh, anyway, um, uh, that was the second thing that really, uh, you know, created some uh, dis- discomfort on us. And then, thirdly, um, we were asked by the session, I-, I don't know whether all of you know this, but there were two trips that I was commissioned by the, the eldership of Gracie Van to take. One was to Kiev and the other was to Krakow. The elders of this church asked me to visit missionaries in those two cities. So those were trips that were really kind of musts. Well, um, uh, when we booked our flights, I really never even noticed it. And then finally I got the tickets out when we were about to head to Kiev. And we were flying on Aris Vit Airlines. Has anybody ever heard of Aris Vit Airlines? Neither had I. Has anybody ever heard of Aeroflot? That's the Russian Airlines that has a safety record that is uh, not real. Well, Aerosvit is a couple of steps before, below Aerosflot. I mean, it turned out to be a nice little flight, but my goodness, who would, I mean, where's Delta when you need them, you know? So here we were getting on a plane flying to, to Kiev, Ukraine on an airline that has, a, you know, not the best of track records. And I'm walking up and down trying to talk to somebody. Has anybody ever heard of Aerosvit? Anybody ever flown it before? Um, that was another thing. The, the other thing was that created this, this sense of unrest in us, or at least in me, was while we were in Kiev, the war broke out. We were in Kiev, Ukraine, the first night those first shots were, were, were fired um, at uh, Saddam Hussein. And uh, that was spooky. I mean, we had been out that night, and we came in, and all of a sudden, there on the television, which we didn't have too much of in Budapest, but in Kiev, they had a television. It was in our bedroom where everybody gathered. Um, but um, everybody was watching the war in our bedroom while we were trying to go to bed. They didn't give a hoot whether we wanted to go to But anyway, the war broke out. And um, uh, the next morning, we wake up to discover that the State Department, that is the United States State Department, had issued a global warning to all Americans to be, uh, uh, to be careful about being in crowds and uh, being around. Uh, um, uh, one of the things they mentioned was to be in places of worship. Avoid places of worship. Well, that's pretty difficult to do when you've been asked to preach on Sunday morning. So um, we were now, guys, it turned out to be, you know, not much of anything that the the State Department warning. But I don't know. Have you ever been out of the country in Kiev, Ukraine, when the State Department issued a warning about Americans not going places? Nor had I. And it was an all new experience with us. And we were thrown in with a couple, this little I forget their names now, but they were cute as they could be. And this guy had been I don't even know. I think it was Uganda. When the government of Uganda was bombing them, they jumped in a foxhole and they were being bombed. 
And I thought, oh, well, great. <laughs> Being bombed. I, you know, I've got a terrorist that's attending church. I've got somebody saying, you know, don't be open there when your country breaks out. You've got to fly on a, on a cheap airlines. And I've got, to, you know, the State Department saying go home and, and you know, get, behind, get under a desk. Now, again, uh, as I look back on it, um, many of those things um, didn't turn out to be much of anything. But it was enough to, to set off. A, a whole series of thinking in, in my mind about the issue of risk and danger. Uh, safety. Call, call it what you like. And if I, in fact, um, I got back, and I'd been back about three days, and I got a long phone call from a guy, and he said this to me, because this is the standard evangelical line. This is the standard evangelical line, ladies and gentlemen. It makes me puke, but it's the, it's the standard evangelical line. It goes like this. The safest place for you to be is in the center of God's will. Well, ladies and gentlemen, why don't you say that to Nate Saint or Jim Elliott or Chet Bitterman? Or why don't you say that to the couple who lost their 13-year-old daughter who was on the bus in Haifa that was blown to smithereens? Why don't you, why don't you use that line with them? Um... Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think that's evangelical mishmash. And I'd like to replace it with something that goes more like this. The most fulfilling and the most joyful and meaningful and peaceful place to be is in the center of God's will. But it may not be the safest. Particularly if your idea of being safe has to do with the freedom from any kind of physical harm. You need look no further than the New Testaments of your Bible, which outline the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. I invite you to check tonight, later on if you'd like, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following, where he lists for us all that he experienced as he sought to serve the living Savior. That's foolishness to look at people, if you mean by safe, that there's not going to be any physical harm, that the, the safest place for you to be is the center of God's will. Forget it, ladies and gentlemen. Just forget it. Now, I'll say this. The most meaningful, the most purposeful, the most joyful place to be is indeed the center of God's will. But it might not be the safest. Um, the American church is absolutely fixated on praying for the safety of her missionaries. Well, I got news for you, ladies and gentlemen. The missionaries that we met who are worth their salt and are really the real deal, at least what I considered the real deal, aren't interested that you pray for their safety. What they're interested that you pray for is their faithfulness. In the midst of whatever circumstances they face, they want you to pray that they will be faithful. They're not necessarily concerned about them being safe, as we mean safe. Let me tell you about um, uh, what happened to us when this shift began to take place in our lives. It took place on a Sunday night. Uh, I had mentioned my concerns to a guy at church on Sunday morning. His name was Dave Bachman. And Dave Bachman, I hope you get to meet one day. 
He's the real deal, ladies and gentlemen. He is, he is just absolutely precious. But Dave called me that night and he said, Jimmy, I've got some stuff that I would like for you to read and listen to concerning the issue of uh, you know, safety that we were talking about this morning. So he said, could we come over? We'd like to drop some stuff off. And Susan and I said, sure, we'd love to have you come over. Come on, drop that stuff off. Well, it turned out that they came in and stayed for two hours. And uh, it, it was very cold that night. That's one of the operative words in the next six weeks, cold. It was cold for seven, for the 12 weeks we were there. It was just cold. Uh, but it was real cold that night, and they came in, and Susie fixed some tea, and we sat around the kitchen table, and we heard the stories of the Bachmans. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm telling you, these are some impressive people. They've been on the mission field for, I don't know, 27 years or so, whatever it is. But they were precious, absolutely precious. And they told us the story. They just left Moscow. In fact, they didn't want to leave Moscow. You know how big Moscow is? 12 million people. I had no idea. 12 million. Did you know the whole, well, not the whole, but almost the whole of the state of Russia or the country of Russia is north of the northernmost point of the United States? It is cold up there, ladies and gentlemen. One guy told me a story about going to uh, one city in, in, uh, in Russia, and it was 40 below zero. 40 below. Now, what you're supposed to ask next is Fahrenheit or centigrade. It doesn't matter. <laughs> At 40 below, Fahrenheit and centigrade meet. Did you know that? I didn't know that. But anyway, uh, this couple's from uh, Moscow, and they're living in a city of 12 million people. Budapest was 3 million. 12 million people. And uh, they had three, uh, was it three or four? I, I, I think they had three small children. And um, in these cities in Europe, and if you've been to Europe, you know this, um, there's not, I mean, public transportation is the way that people move around. Um, and there's a lot of cars now since the fall of the wall, but public transportation is still a staple. Well, um, uh, little Debbie Bachman sitting at our table and she's saying, you know, we got three kids and they're, they're 12, 8, and 6 or whatever they were. I mean, they're older now. But um, she said, we made a decision early on that we were going to have to fling our, our kids out into the streets of Moscow and trust the Lord God that they would be fine. I never did that with my kids. Uh, John Piper tells a story. Um, you, you know the name John Piper. He is a, a pastor of a, of a Baptist church in Minneapolis. And it's a downtown church. And they, uh, he tells a story about that. I think they have like 18 staff members. And he says from time to time, you know, they have vacancies on their staff. And they're looking for people to replace, I mean, to fill those vacancies. And he says, I sit with these young men and um, uh, interviewing them for a job. And he says, the first question that he said, in fact, he says, I'm sick of hearing it. I'm sick of hearing this question. He said, all of our staff, all 18 of our staff live uh, within the downtown area of Minneapolis. And he said, when I, when I interview these prospective guys for jobs, they always ask me this question. And I'm sick of hearing it. Here's the question. Will my kids be safe? And he said, I'm sick of hearing it. I'm sick of parents thinking, oh, well, I might minister for Jesus if you can assure me if my kids will be safe. The Bachmans didn't. The Bachmans took their kids and said, Lord God, take care of my kids. And there they went out on the streets of Moscow with 12 million people. Ladies and gentlemen, we got into a, a, a train, a, a subway um, in Kiev, Ukraine one night. We, I forget where we'd been, but we got into a, a, a train 
There were so many blasted people on that thing. I, I, I'm telling we were all just, you know, just stuck in there. And, and Roger looks at me and he says, you know, in Tokyo, they have people who stand outside the doors with white gloves and they press people in so they can get packed in. I said, how could they press any more people in here? And we were just smothered in there. And I, and I think, by the way, we rode on a, a piece of public transportation where there was a drunk on the thing and his whole face was bloodied. He had obviously been in some kind of fight or fallen or something like that. And it was gross to look at. All I'm saying to you is, the Batmans took their three kids and said, Lord God, they'll be fine. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was, they, they left after those two hours. And when they left, my wife and I were a bit ashamed. We weren't changed, and we still aren't. I hope you hear me say that. We weren't changed, and we still aren't. But the change is underway. It has begun, and I want to take you with me. I want to list for you tonight some of the factors, some of the thoughts that have contributed to this change that has begun in my, in my whole uh, way of thinking concerning this principle that I have articulated, or ex- at least the scriptures have, have mentioned out of 1 Corinthians 11. I want to mention five things, so stay with me. We haven't got much time. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, I want to show you, if you've got your Bibles in your laps, you need to open them and read them with me. I want you to turn real quickly to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, uh, verses 10 and 11. I'll read them, uh, and you can find them later. But here we go. Revelation chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now look at verse 11. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, were completed, was completed. Now do you notice, ladies and gentlemen, the point of verse 11 is this, that there's one of the factors that must occur before everything's over and Jesus comes again. You know what it is? There's a certain number of martyrs. There is a fixed number of martyrs out there that people are going to die. And when the last one dies, Jesus will come. That's one of the evidences. That's one of the precursors of Jesus' return. When martyrs, when the cup of martyrdom has been filled up. Wait just a little bit longer, you martyrs, because there's a few more of you that's got to follow. And when the last one is dead, I'll come. And I'll vindicate you. That's one of the texts. Luke chapter 21. Luke 21 verse 16 says this. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. Not all of you, but some of you. Some of you will die. Jesus makes that promise, ladies and gentlemen, that some who seek to serve Him are going to die in the process of doing so. One other text, again, that contributed as... That is contributing. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 36 says this. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep 
for the slaughter. That's descriptive of the people of God, ladies and gentlemen. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Has that been factored into your view of what it means to follow Jesus Christ? Has it? Has the possibility of you being martyred for the, for the sake of the kingdom of Christ ever crossed your mind? Has it ever? Um, one of the stories that I've, I don't know whether I heard it, told, uh, was told it, read it, I've, I've heard so much in the last 15 weeks, but uh, a story about uh, a couple, uh, about 15 years ago, uh, two men were captured by, in Colombia, they were um, captured by war, drug warlords, and um, um, they, were, they were held for about 60 days, and then they were, they were released and they were unharmed. But in that period of time, while they were captive, they read to each other the New Testament, and I forget how many times, you know, 45 times or whatever it was, and they read it in Spanish to each other. And um, their, their, their statement was something like this. They were surprised. To their surprise, they saw this, this, um, uh, un, uh, uh, this message that jumped out at them from reading the New Testament was the overwhelming amount of danger and suffering that was experienced by God's people in the Bible. Now, these were missionaries, ladies and gentlemen, in Colombia. And as they read the New Testament, they were shocked and surprised at the overwhelming amount of danger the people of God experienced as they sought to serve Jesus Christ. You know what? I've been shocked too. Read the New Testament that way. Go back to the New Testament and find out and look at it and see and, and make note of the kinds of things that point to, predict, assure, promise, describe danger and risk on the part of the people of God as they sought to serve Jesus Christ. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the first thing that began to, is, that is beginning to work on me concerning my whole understanding of what awaits me in my, in my efforts to serve Jesus Christ. That's factor number one. Just the, the, the volume uh, and the emphasis that's contained in the New Testament concerning the issue. Go back and read your... I, I challenge you to do so. Second factor. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ, by dying in our place, has removed all sense, all measure, all degree of eternal risk. And because he has removed all sense of eternal risk, he calls his people to temporal risk. For Christians, the final and ultimate risk is gone. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. There is neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things created, nor things uncreated, nor things in the heavens, nor things at the end of the sea. Nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. From the love of God in Jesus Christ. All ultimate risk is gone. And because it is, we are called to temporal risk. My brother and sister in Christ, hear me. You and I love life way too much. We act like people who don't believe that there is an eternity of felicity and bliss that awaits us. We live for this life as if another does not await us. And because we love this life so much, we are very reticent 
very reluctant to risk anything for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's my second uh, factor that began to work on me. That is, eternal risk is gone. And now I'm free to take some temporal risks. Third factor. Ladies and gentlemen, and this is one of the things that we talk so much about with the Bachmans, but um, you know this to be true about me. It is true across the board. But I'm telling you, in this particular area, I have an utter repugnance for the message of American consumerism that has crept into the church that says to us, maximize comfort and security. That's the message that we're getting, that we are to maximize our our comfort and security. If you've got your Bibles open, I'd like for you to turn with me real fast to Jeremiah chapter 14. I'm not going to wait on you, so um, uh, time is of essence. But uh, Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them. I have not commanded them nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination and a worthless thing in the deceit of their heart. What was the essence of this divination of their heart, ladies and gentlemen? Let me read it to you again. The prophets say, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. That, ladies and gentlemen, is categorically false. That's the lie of false prophets. And I have no commission whatsoever to tell you anything but what this book tells you. The Western church, ladies and gentlemen, is up to here in their pursuit of security and comfort. And it is totally absent from this book. It is not to be found here, ladies and gentlemen. And I am only commissioned to tell you what is found here. You mean to tell you what's found here? I'll tell you what's found here. Jesus says, uh, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you for my sake. And all of you who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's in here. Let me show you one more. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. This is, this is just, this is earth shattering to me. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 verses 13 and 14. I hope I've got that right. Yes. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Why? Why should we do that? Look at that 14th verse, ladies and gentlemen. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Let us go forth and bear his shame and reproach. Because we don't seek this city. We have another city. And that's the one we fixed our attention and our eyes on, ladies and gentlemen. Isn't it? Why do we live with such unwillingness to bear any kind of reproach and shame? 
part of the reason we have to admit is that we love this life way too much. In, um, in our Christian experience, ladies and gentlemen, because of this message of American consumerism, which is, you know, meet the needs of the people and give them what they want and all that business, uh, I'm telling you, it, is, it, is, it just does damage across the board. But in our Christian experience, any kind of Hebrews 13, 13, and 14 experience, I think, has gotten buried It has gotten buried under our own wealth and the pile of security and safety and control and things that we all possess. Ladies and gentlemen, when I went into the ministry, I knew that my earning potential would be cut significantly. I probably could make more money in the the corporate world. I probably could have made more money in the corporate world. And I knew... That if I went into the ministry, that I was going to cut that significantly. But I want you to know something. I am wealthy. And so are you. And any pursuits of this heavenly city have gotten buried under stuff. And, 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 Our souls are being smothered under our own wealth. And the devilish thing is, we call that God's blessing. Some of you are being strangled by all that you have. But we're the ones who have revolvers in our bedside tables so that people won't steal any of our stuff. That was the fourth thing, ladies, or the third thing. This consumerism message that absolutely drives me just up the wall. For the church to turn this message into what we've turned it into is an absolute disgust, and it ought to revolt us that what we have allowed the, 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 the pulpit to tell us and convince us of. Because I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't square with the Scriptures. The fourth factor. Is Jay Parker here? This happened years ago, maybe, maybe a couple of years ago. But Jay Parker said something to me that really started, and I've, I've told my wife this several times. And I'm not sure I'm quoting him exactly. But Jay said something like this. And I've tried to, tried to write it down as, as faithfully as I could. But he said something like this. He said, my fear is not that I will live a life that's too short but that I will live a life that is too long. Now, that's easy to say when you're Jay Parker. I mean, he's 97 years old or whatever he is, but um, <clears throat> there is a profound message in that statement. That is profound, ladies and gentlemen. I am not afraid of living too short. I'm afraid of living too long. Now, ladies and gentlemen, hear me well. I do not have a death wish. But I am going to do everything within my power. I am going to do everything within my power to not die in a nursing home. Some of you are going to die in a nursing home. And it may just be 
the judgment of God on our lust for safety. Is life so sweet that we're going to guard ourselves and end up shriveled up in some bed in a nursing home? Let's go. Wouldn't you rather die on the front lines serving Jesus Christ? Ladies and gentlemen, I would rather die in an airplane crash than die in a nursing home. I would much rather burn out than rust out. And some of you are rusting out. My last factor that influenced me was our trip to Krakow. I told you earlier that the session had asked that we take two trips. Um, you know, the, the, it was scheduled for the last week that we were there. Um, the, the church was supposed to come over. They canceled their trip because of the war, as, as I've already noted. But um, I emailed back to Brent, and I said, Brent, uh, should I go? Should I go on without them? And, and, I, and he called Jerry, and Jerry said, you know, the, you know, the tickets are bought. Why don't you go ahead and go? Um, well, actually, that's not true. That was the Kiev trip. Um, yeah, I think you should already go. And so then I checked on the tickets, and they were like $1,100 for two tickets to go to Krakow. No, no flights went from Budapest to Krakow, so you had to go to Warsaw to, to Krakow. To Krakow. Yeah. So, and it was $1,100, and I thought, I don't want to spend $1,100. Actually, I was looking for a reason not to go. Um, and so when we were in Ukraine, we were talking to Tarash, and uh, some of you all remember Tarash, but uh, he said, why don't you hire a driver? By the way, we had checked into an overnight train. We were going to do that. Um, unfortunately, in the overnight compartments, uh, there are six bunks in there, which means that we could have been sleeping with four other people, uh, who none of them. Then we th- were told, why don't you get a first-class um, um, overnight compartment? That'll be good. So we checked into that. That's fine. There's three bunks in those. So we could have been sleeping with whoever, you know. Uh, so we decided we can't do that. Um, I couldn't ask my wife to travel 13 hours in, the, in, a, in a sleeper with somebody else we didn't know. <laughs> So anyway, uh, we, we started to look into this hiring a driver thing, and we did, and we found this guy. And I'm telling you, I can't, I, I can't tell you how many fears that set off in me. First of all, he's driving a car that's rented by the church in Budapest from Fox Auto Rental. So I call Fox Auto Rental, and I say, uh, hey, listen, uh, do y'all mind if this guy drives a car? Oh, no, heck, let him drive. Oh, gosh, what, what's the matter? You know, they can't do that in the States. What if he has an accident? Oh, my goodness, if he has an accident... You know, they'll sue us, and I call somebody and say, what about suing? They say, well, you know, they don't sue over here. Oh, okay, they don't sue. Um, you know, there's no litigation. There's no litigation. Don't worry about it. Just go ahead and, oh, yeah, you know Vladimir? Sure, he's a Latvian. Take him. Oh, let him go. He can drive. Oh, he well, so we hired Vladimir. I mean, I asked him to give us a price. He gave us a price, and it was unbelievable. I mean, it saved the church $800 for us to do it this way instead of taking the airplane. So we got this Latvian driving us to uh, Krakow, Poland. Well, uh, oh, yeah, uh, he was precious. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, actually, we couldn't have done it without him. He, I mean, we got all these border guards to go through, you know. You got these border things in the past, and he comes to these things, and he's talking Polish, and he's talking Slovakian, and he's talking. And he's talking he was just unbelievable. But I'm telling you, he'd drive like a wild man. Have you ever heard of the Tatra Mountains? Neither had I. But they're pretty big. Uh, in fact, they have ski resorts in the Tatra Mountains, and the Tatra Mountains are between Budapest and Krakow. And on April the 9th, ladies and gentlemen, April the 9th, it's snowing in Poland. Do you know how far north Poland is? I didn't. I do now. It's up somewhere around close to the Arctic Circle. <laughs> uh, it, it was snowing. It was snowing through the mountains, and we're just in, you know, sweet Vladimir. He's just driving through the Tatras. And, I, you know, Susie's in the back seat, you know, lying and, and sleeping, and I'm up in the front just 
I'm, I, we finally got to Krakow, and I was exhausted. And, you know, at one point, I mean, at one point, I finally just said, Lord, you know, I can't, I can't do anything about this. Anyway, uh, I can tell you just tons and tons of little details about that, but I got we, we drove back, we got all this traffic in Budapest, and we were supposed to go out to supper that night with a couple, and, and it was just, it was just, it was just stressful. The whole time was stressful. But I, I had gone to Krakow, we enjoyed Krakow, we saw Auschwitz, we saw Birkenau. We, um, I met with about 11 pastors, and they sat there and acted like they were hearing the voice of some archangel. Um, it, was, it was unbelievable. And um, uh, met with our, our, our missionary up there, little Antek Pol, uh, uh, Polowski, or whatever his name, Poltolski. And he was precious. Anyway, got back home, and I thought, not one of my fears, not one of my fears were realized. I was fine. And I came to this conclusion, ladies and gentlemen. The real work has got to be done on the front end. The real work has got to be done when you pray through or you're supposed to go in the first place. When you find out that you're supposed to go, if you do, then let her rip. And that's easy for me to say after, you know, I'm safe now, too. Yeah. But ladies and gentlemen, the center of God's will is not where you might be the safest. I'm not saying you're going to be safe. I'm just saying you're going to be fine. I want to make three disclaimers, tell a story, and I'm finished. Here's my three disclaimers. First of all, I am by no means, no means trying to hint, suggest, or imply that the highest level of Christian service is to be found on the mission field. By no means am I saying that. So don't hear that. There is a great deal of kingdom work that is done right here in Germantown. And very frankly, one of the things this, this trip did for us is confirm the fact that we're called here and that we feel like we can do far more right where we are. But my point is, please don't get that impression. Don't walk out of here thinking, well, you know, if we're going to serve Jesus, we've got to be in the mission. I'm not saying that. I'm not hitting that at all. I'm saying that if you're going to be close to the king, it's going to involve some rest. That's what I'm saying. Here's my second disclaimer. I'm not saying that every one of you, that there's not a Christian that I know, that's not living with some measure of risk. I know some of you are. Some of you do lay it on the line. And I applaud you. But I'm saying in the main, we live lives of safety and comfort. And here's what I'm saying thirdly. If you walk out of here tonight feeling guilty, stop. Guilt is not going to take you where Jesus wants you to go. I'm saying this, that Jesus Christ offers us the most meaningful, the most exhilarating, the most purposeful, the most glorious life that is available to man. And we stay home and make mud pies because we're afraid. C.S. Lewis has got this great line about we've been offered a, a holiday by the sea but because we can't conceive of the holiday by the sea we stay home and play in the mud. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not saying that your lives are lived too high. I'm saying your lives are lived too low. I'm not saying you're living high on the hog. I'm saying you're missing the hog. 
I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that we are wasting life because we're piling up bucks so that we can have this safe and secure retirement and play golf four times a week when we retire. May God have mercy on us. I'll tell you a quick story and I'm finished. Have you ever, ever heard the name of Adoniram Judson? Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson. I've got a book and I looked for it this afternoon. I couldn't find it. But Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma. And um, most of his time spent in Burma, he was, he was uh, imprisoned. He was um, shackled at his ankles and his wrists. And he was in those shackles for so long that he developed um, scar materials. Uh, or I guess that's what it's, uh, scar material. Scar tissue around both ankles, around both ankles and both wrists. When the king of Burma finally set him free, the king of Burma made this statement. I do not fear that man's message, but I do fear that man's scars. You don't get those scars on the, on the golf course, ladies and gentlemen. And you don't get them by playing it safe. What I'm saying to you tonight is not some kind of plea for reckless living. But it is a plea. It is a plea for faithful living. Because if you're going to get next to the heart of the king, it's going to involve some risk. And if you go back to that story in First Chronicles chapter 11, you will notice David is not trying to manipulate them via guilt, and nor am I. He's not saying something about how badly they've done, nor am I. I'm saying that the king has a longing. Does that give you delight to meet that longing? Because the only way that life is going to be lived at its fullest is going to involve some rest for all of us. Our Father, I do pray that you'll forgive me um, that I have lived much of my Christian life trying to protect myself from any kind of um, unknown consequence or unknown circumstance. And uh, we who have listened to um, preachers tell us that we are supposed to be experiencing health and wealth and, and think that that's God's blessing. I, I'm telling you, Lord, I, I, I wonder how you continue to abide with us. But I thank you that you do. I thank you that um, though our sins be as scarlet, the Lord Jesus has made them white as snow. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would raise up an army in this room that would be willing to um, put their, their lives on the line, their, their financial futures on the line, their portfolios on the line, their time on the line, whatever it is, because they believe that life is more meaningful lived out in service to Jesus Christ than it is lived out in service to anything else. And as we construct a, um, 
a view of our future, O oh God. I pray that you'll help us to factor in that if indeed we are to ever be close to the heart of the King, it's going to mean that we're going to have to take some risks. And I pray, O oh God, that you will that you will bury these truths in my heart so that I can um, point the congregation into a place where we get very close to the king's longings. Father, uh, do not let people leave here feeling guilty. Stop them in the midst of whatever guilt they might have. Give them a vision for the holiday by the sea. Give them a vision for that which we're missing in meaningful, purposeful, uh, stimulating, exhilarating service to the King of Kings. And Father, I ask that you would help us, that you would prevent us from any of us having to experience the, the tragedy of... Uh, losing our lives in a nursing home. I pray for those poor souls that are there, and I pray that you would uh, raise up a, um, a mighty army among us that we would burn out before we rust out. Do that, Lord God. Uh, might this place lead the way in showing the world how meaningful it can be to live for Jesus Christ. That's my hope, Lord. That's what I want to do. I am not there, but you have given me great um, exposures. I thank you for them, and I pray that they will result in a changed heart, a changed life, and a changed man. We commit all of that to you, asking for grace, mercy, and fullness of your Holy Spirit as we pursue the heart of the King. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.